Well, it's a great privilege to be here at Amen. Uh, it was only about 10 years ago uh, when Pat McCarty invited me to my first Amen Bible study. Uh, and here we are 10 years later getting the chance to share from God's word uh, with you today. My wife, Michelle, and I have been on staff here at Second Prez working with our college ministry for the last 10 years. Uh, we've got four kiddos uh, ranging from seven down to two. Um, and uh, we owe a lot of gratitude to uh, the ministry of Amen and also this church, which uh, was the venue through which we came to know the Lord. Um, it was in 2007 when, uh, when I was a college student at the University of Memphis, uh, and um, a friend of mine invited me to a Bible study. Um, so I went there, and as I was standing of all places uh, at the urinal, uh, one of the staff members named Jordan Holbrook uh, started sparking up a conversation with me. And it was in that conversation, uh, as quick as that was, uh, that we started to meet up at McAllister's uh, up the street on Poplar and Highland. And he started sharing the gospel with me. Uh, it was the first time uh, that my eyes had been enlightened, that I finally understood the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, and one of the questions that he had asked me uh, when we met was, he said, Denny, if you were standing before God uh, on the day of judgment and God asked you the question, why should I let you into my gates? Why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And as I sat there fumbling around through my answers and what I would tell God, I think I realized that my relationship with God was more built around what I could do for God and, and more of my religious activity than it was an actual relationship with Jesus Christ himself. And so I would say that when I thought about my faith, it was, it was more about my obedience to the Mosaic law than it was the grace of Jesus Christ that had been given to me. And even today, um, I share the gospel with college students and, and one of the questions that I ask is similar. Uh, and I think the answer to that question really brings out what someone believes about their inherent status as sons of God and, and, and whether or not they view themselves as sons of God, our Father. And so I wanna unpack that idea with us today in just a little context. We're gonna be looking at Galatians 4, verses one through seven. Um, Paul is addressing the church in Galatia and there's some false teaching going on. There's, there's Judaizers who are um, actively promoting what Paul says is a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Um, and basically Paul's emphasis is that there's no other way that we can be justified before the Lord apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Um, so it's not circumcision, it's not our obedience to the Mosaic law. None of these things can ultimately give us our righteousness that can only be found in Jesus Christ. And so, so Paul is appealing to them on the, on the premise of the promises that are given to Abraham and all of his uh, lineage. Um, he's appealing to them uh, from the Mosaic law saying essentially that the law would be a guide that would lead us to salvation by grace uh, in Jesus Christ. And the central thrust of that message we can see earlier in chapter two, verse 16, which says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And later on in chapter three, he goes on to say in verse 10, if you rely on your obedience to the law for salvation, you're cursed. Rather the life we now live is by faith. And so by the time we get to Galatians four, um, there's, there's, there's the notion here that if, um, that because Christ has redeemed us from the curse, has redeemed those under the law, we now have received adoption as sons 
Uh, so we no longer have to earn our salvation. We no longer have to um, view our salvation in light of, of, of what, what we might be able to accomplish for God, but we view it um, in light of the, the, the accomplished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So we're going to look at Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7, and, and, and here's um, the words of, of Paul here writing to the church in Galatia. I mean that the heir as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons." And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We're going to look at three things in our time together. We're going to see that we long for new realities under the law in verses 1 through 3. Then we're going to look at the fact that we receive a new status in our adoption as sons. And then finally, that we inherit new privileges in the family of God. But before we do that, let's pray together uh, for our time. Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're grateful that uh, we have this time together and, and we ask Holy Spirit that you would enlighten our hearts, illuminate your word, that we might know you and serve you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we would love you with all that we have. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So in verses one through three, the, the, the main idea here is that we long for new realities under the law. While we were children, while we were under the law, we longed for new realities. Um, I didn't always grow up in church. My, um, actually, my, my dad was stationed in the army over in South Korea where he worked the North and South Korea DMZ, the, the demilitarized zone where he met my mom. Uh, they got married and, and we actually moved to Germany. That's where I was born. And, and then we ended up uh, in, in living in Southern Alabama. And while we were there, the Korean church was one of the primary places that my mom found a sense of fellowship. Um, so it was great. I, I got to go to these church services and, um, and it was a great, awesome time. I got to see uh, just all these Korean brothers and sisters worshiping God. And, and we would even have these prayer meetings um, at our house and, and my mom and, and her friends would just be laid out on the floor, just crying out to God. It was an unbelievable thing as a young child to just kind of creep down the hallway and kind of look into the living room and see all these voices uh, all at the same time crying out to God in, in prayer. There's a real desperation for God. But, but I would say maybe the biggest challenge for me was that I didn't speak Korean. <laughs> and so here I was in all these services, you know, with a, with a Bible, but, but had no idea how to really know God or even how to relate to God. I just knew that God was there. And I kind of had this, this idea that, that God was somewhere up there in the clouds. And, and I can literally remember as a young kid, just laying on my slide in my backyard, looking up in the stars, just saying, God, if you're up there and you hear me, please show me a sign, show, some, show me something. Um, um, but I didn't really know God. Um, and so because of that, I related to God uh, like I would any other authority figure in my life. God to me was kind of a football coach. He was kind of somebody that I did my job and, and I receive uh, praise from him or maybe I get a starting role in the team or he was like a teacher where I'm supposed to do what I'm supposed to do in the classroom. But it was all 
primarily performance-based. It was what I could do uh, to measure up to a standard. And that's kind of how I viewed God. Um, and I knew very little about the personal, intimate relationship that I could have with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And so three things were true of me then and, and, and can be true for us um, today as we look back at our relationship with God through the law. Um, one, we see that we were heirs, yet no different than slaves. He says, we were heirs, yet no different than slaves before we had faith in Christ. Um, so there's this idea that of an heir where we know this to be true, that as a child, you receive an inheritance from your father. There's a birth, uh, there's privileges there by birth, and, and there's an inheritance that's forthcoming. Um, so there's an appeal here to the Abrahamic covenant and the promises that we would receive um, as part of uh, that line that would be given to us. But he says, although we were heirs, we were no different than slaves. At that time, we had no real experience of the blessings that would be received um, in Christ. Um, so which made us, from, a, from, a, from an inheritance standpoint, not too much different um, from a child and a slave. But secondly, we, we see that we were children under guardians and managers. We were, we were children under uh, parental supervision. Um, so what's helpful here is to understand uh, the three different uses of the law that we see in scripture. Uh, one use of the law um, is that it drives us to Christ. Uh, so we see that, that God has revealed his law to us, that we, we see his character revealed in his law. Um, and we also, when we look at him, we, we also notice how holy, holy, holy he is and how unholy we are and how short we fall um, from, from who he is. And, and so God's law is revealed to drive us to Christ. It, it shows us our need uh, for Christ and the cross. And, and that was Luther's emphasis in the Reformation. Um, but, but we also see that the law is used to restrain evil and unrighteousness in the earth. God has given us uh, a, a moral law on our hearts and it restrains evil from just going forth in, in the earth, although it does to an extent, it's, it's limited. Um, but then thirdly, we see that the law was given to, to show us how we should live as Christians, uh, how we should live as followers of Christ. But, but the law was never intended to be a means through which we are justified by God. Justified meaning to be declared righteous. We, the law was never a means through which we could attain righteousness um, if the law is our standard because we all fall short. So he says that the law was given as a guardian or a manager, uh, which was the case in Roman households. We would see guardians and managers um, that a father would employ and take care of his children, um, but he would also keep them, uh, these managers and guardians would take care of the child, but also they were kept from maybe some of the most intimate uh, conversations and dealings of the father. Um, so we were heirs, but no different than slaves, but we were also children under guardians and managers. But then thirdly, we see that we were enslaved to elementary principles of the world. Before faith in Christ, before we began to view ourselves primarily as those who are in Christ, um, we had an identification with the world. And, and, and because of that, we were enslaved uh, to the world. So in ancient Greek, um, um, in that time, uh, this, this reference to the elements of the material, visible world, we even see it in Colossians. Um, the, there's, there's these gods that the people would serve that were affiliated with these ideas of fire, water, air, and earth. Um, and they were, since these were material things in the world, there were kind of gods behind those things. And so you had to align yourself and, um, and even um, worship at time and appease these gods who were responsible for these different material uh, blessings 
things. Um, so the farmers in that time would sacrifice to the weather god, for instance. Uh, sailors would, would worship the sea god. Um, soldiers, uh, the god of military success. And then even in, in our love relationships, the god of physical beauty. So there were these kind of uh, connections made with these material gods. And now I know that we're not necessarily worshiping token gods in our households or in our workplaces. Um, but in, in similarly, I would say sometimes I find myself finding my worth and value and even finding my righteousness in accordance with some of these things that God has placed around me. So sometimes I look to my job to define me. Sometimes I look to uh, relationships, uh, certain relationships that I have to give me more value. Sometimes I look to my affiliations uh, to build up my self-worth. Um, and, and so the argument is made on the heels of our passage today in Galatians 4 verses 8 and 9. He says this, that formerly when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? He says, so if God has saved us, why do we find ourselves going back to find our sense of righteousness and worth in this world and just by identifying with those things of the world? He says there's an enslaving effect to that. There is, um, when I begin to serve those things, they, they be, begin to master me. Um, and, and we know that anyone apart from the Lord Jesus Christ makes a terrible master, um, but it leads to a life of slavery. And at the end of the day, if we live our lives this way, it's a failure to realize our place in the family of God and the inheritance that has been given to us in Christ. So two big ideas really here relating to the law. One is just that our righteousness our righteousness cannot be determined by obedience to the law or by any other worldly institution or external affiliation. Uh, our righteousness, our right standing before a holy God cannot be determined by those things. So we get this idea of justification that Paul's building out that, that we are justified not based on works of the law. Um, in Galatians 2.21, if righteousness could be obtained through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He says, if you could really work your way to, to God and, and you could really obey God enough to have a right standing with him, then Christ died for no purpose. Then what was the entire purpose for Christ even dying on the cross if, if that could happen? So the only proper response that I can have on the day of judgment when he asked, if he were to ask, why, would I, why should I let you into heaven? My only response should be, I don't deserve to be here. It is only because of the grace of Jesus Christ lavished upon me that I'm standing here and able to enter into your courts. It is only because of the record of Christ given to me that I can now enter into heaven. But not only in our justification, but in our sanctification. Um, our sanctification, us growing in our relationship with Christ, becoming more like Christ is also not based upon our obedience to the law. Galatians 3 verse 3, are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? So we know that it was a work of the spirit from the very beginning. Are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? Um, but I think there's a danger here also that we need to be, be aware of that our adoption in Christ, even as we take a look at this here in a second, is not a means to live um, how we want um, in the world. Um, so if, even if you look at the Sonship Movement um, back in the mid-90s, uh, Jack Miller 
and others who, who promoted the idea of our adoption in Christ. I think there was a great emphasis upon our, our, our beautiful adoption in Christ, but maybe um, the, the downside of that was maybe an overemphasis on internal thinking and even the, the freedom that we might feel we now have to live licentiously in the world. Um, so it, it's, our, it's our understanding that we are not saved by our works that really promotes and propels us to live more for Christ and to obey more fully and to desire to become more like Christ in our obedience to him. So the gospel frees us from both legalism and licentiousness. But we also see that our inheritance as children would not be received until the date set by the father. So, so we see that we, uh, we had this understanding of the law up until a present, up until a current time that God would set. So under the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenant, uh, promises were given ultimately that, that God would be our God, that we would be his people and he would come uh, dwell with us. But we won't experience that full reality until the date set by the father. Um, and so the story goes on and it gets better, but the promise of God was that there would come a time when we as children would come of age and there would be a new thing that would happen and a new covenant established, forming a new way in which merit is earned in the kingdom of God. So what is that way? Well, let's look at verses four and five here. We receive a new status in our adoption as sons. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So we're gonna see a what, when, I'm sorry, a when, what, and a why here, when. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. This is an unbelievable thing that I wanna breeze over. The incarnation of, of Christ, that God became flesh and came to us is unlike any other idea in, in any other religion, that God himself in his humility and grace would come to us and in the fullness of time, he would enter into human space and history and Jesus Christ, his firstborn only son would come into this earth to save us. And so when he did, we, we, we have this recognition that God was, that Jesus was fully God and fully man, that he was fully God, but he was also born of woman, as, as Paul says here in Galatians, that uh, we see a picture of him, both his divinity and his humanity. And it's important that we see that because if Christ wasn't uh, human, uh, if he was just God, uh, then there would still be a huge chasm in between us in God, there would be no humiliation of Christ. There would be no God coming to us. And we still might be here trying to uh, wait and long for uh, the day where, where he would come, but, but he has come. And, and, and one of the things in understanding uh, what has been called the hypostatic union um, is, that, is that God was both fully God and fully man at the same time. And because of that, he was the only one with the rights to redeem those who were under the law. So what happened? What happened? God sent forth his son to redeem those under the law. So the idea of redeeming is the idea of being bought back, to be bought back. So, so we were enslaved, we owed a debt, um, and we were literally bought back um, by the blood of Christ into the family of God. Uh, a payment was paid, rights were received. There's kind of two sides to this. We, we're gonna see both his perfect sacrifice and his perfect obedience. But because of the, the, the cross, because Jesus went to the cross willingly on our behalf, he paid our debt in full. 
Um, so we had owed this, uh, this, this debt to God, um, and we see this payment made in, in, in chapter 3, verse 13, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is the man who is hanged on a tree. So Christ himself bore our sins on the tree, um, purchasing our freedom that we now have. So all of our sins, past, present, and future have all been placed on the cross of Christ. But not only that, not only did we see a perfect sacrifice on the cross, but we also saw through the life of Jesus Christ, his perfect obedience. Um, It says he was born under the law. So Jesus's perfect record when we put our faith in him was given to us. So there we, we were out there on the greens playing 18 holes and we're shooting a, a 105. And we look down at our scorecard and, 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 and it reads that we have an 18. Someone else's record has been given to us and ours has been wiped clean. But not only that, but we have now inherited this, this, this fortune um, in Christ. Um, and, and that fortune um, of Christ's righteousness was imputed to us. Sometimes I, when I'm sharing the gospel on campus, I, I go back to this idea. Um, I'll, I'll ask the question, you know, how much do you owe in student loans? Which is kind of a, you know, a, takes a vulnerability to, to answer that one. <laughs> it's kind of be a crazy question. But, um, but, but, but I share this, uh, this idea of the two sides of the same coin here, um, Christ's sacrifice and Christ's obedience. In saying that, that it's, it's not only that Christ, out of his mercy and grace, has paid for your debt, has not only paid for your loan, but he has also credited your account with money beyond that you can even imagine. Um, and, and that's the truth of God sending forth his son to redeem those, to buy back those who are under the law. And because of that, we are no longer, uh, we no longer belong to ourselves or to anyone else but God. Um, we have been bought, literally, uh, released from old masters in order to serve anew. I love Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I was crucified with him. I died with him. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a picture of the love of God that allows us, that frees us to say we are now his. So why? Why does it matter? He says all of this so that we might receive adoption as sons that we might receive adoption as sons. And um, this word adoption um, uh, is, is only written five times uh, in the Bible. And all five times it was written by Paul. So it's a, it's a Pauline idea. And, and it's, it's helpful to know that um, in the early church, adoption wasn't uh, necessary or even a common Jewish practice. Um, but it was a Greco-Roman uh, practice where older sons could be adopted uh, into the family to carry on the family name and, um, and lineage. And, and our adoption, as we understand our adoption in Christ, it's a powerful idea that really didn't start catching traction as its own idea until about the 1600s. So, so there's really not a lot explicitly written about our adoption in Christ um, leading up to the Westminster assemblies. Um, and so there were, minus a couple exceptions out there, typically when you heard of this idea of our adoption in Christ, it was joined with the idea of our justification or our regeneration, but it's usually linked up with other uh, robust ideas that we see, um, these beautiful doctrines that we, that we know to be true. Um, but when the Westminster assemblies gathered, there was, there was a, kind of a, um, a building out of this topic of our adoption as its own thing to understand. And, and there's kind of a short, powerful idea that's, 
that's, um, that's unpacked there. But, but, but why does that matter? Well, well, here's why it matters. Sometimes when we think about our, our, our justification or our relationship with God, this, this was the case for me um, growing up in, uh, in, 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 in the place where I grew up at. Um, I viewed God, I knew that God had legally paid for my sins. Um, and, and it was as if I was in a courtroom and, and my, my debt had been paid. Um, and, and so I now had this relationship with God knowing that truth. But adoption takes it a step farther and says, not only were you declared righteous, but that courtroom scene moves to a living room scene and you realize that the judge is actually your father. And that takes on a whole different experience, just, just experientially, it, it, it feels different. It, it, it seems different. Um, and even to this day, I, I still struggle with viewing God as my father, especially my Abba father. Um, um, and it's because of, of my um, typical, the, like, like I mentioned earlier, typically the way that I relate with many other people is, is this performance uh, thing, which is not good in itself. But uh, one of my mentors actually encouraged me to do an adoption study this summer, which is where some of this idea is coming from. Um, but the Westminster Confession of Faith says that we enjoy the liberties and privileges of God's children. We have his name put on us and we receive the spirit of adoption. We have access to the throne of grace with boldness and we are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. So we're going to drill down into some of those ideas here as Paul does in verses six and seven. Um, we have this inheritance now as children of God. Um, he says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We have these unbelievable rights and, and blessings and privileges now in the family of God. Um, my wife and I went down this journey of adoption. It was about a two-year process of adopting our youngest sweet little girl, um, Audrey, and she is a, a precious gem in our family. Um, and, um, and, and kind of throughout those two years, I would say the culmination of, of this process was when we stood before the judge um, and had our, our legal court hearing. Um, and, and one of the things that I was surprised at in that court hearing was the great lengths that the judge went as I was uh, saying my vows, the great lengths that he went to make sure that I as a father would relate to this new child the same exact way that I would relate to my other three. He wanted to make sure that this child who was now a part of our family or getting ready to be a part of our family would now experience the full blessings of our family and would be treated no differently than any other child. And because we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and we are now adopted into the family of God as sons, God treats us no differently than he would his son, Jesus Christ. So I want you to notice here that our adoption is actually a Trinitarian work. There's, there's three new realities that, that Paul is gonna share here. One is that God, our father, invites us to call him Abba. We now have this unbelievable privilege to call God Abba Father. This would have fell, fell on fresh ears um, if, if, if we were hearing this for the first time because nobody in, in all of, of the scriptures or in all of ancient uh, Near East time frame would have ever called Yahweh Father. Um, God was referenced as a father um, to the people of Israel as a nation. Uh, and we see that in Exodus 4, Isaiah 63, 64. Um, 
but for an individual, now, nobody would have that privilege. Uh, none of God's entire creation, not, not the angels, not even non-believers, nobody is able to call God Father. But when Jesus hits the scene in the Gospels, we see that Jesus relates to God as Abba, Father. He calls him Father, and he says that we now, uh, in Christ, are able to call God Father. Now, it's interesting that word Abba is actually Aramaic uh, for the word daddy. And Paul is speaking to a Greek-speaking audience. And so why would he use Aramaic to describe, uh, why would he use Aramaic language in the context of those who speak Greek? Well, um, this was the same, this was the, the language that Jesus himself spoke. And so that language and that ability to come to God in that way, he is saying, is now given to us. And it's, it's that idea, that picture of a, of a child who nestles into the bosom of their father um, and is able to, to speak with their father in this intimate way. Sinclair Ferguson said this in his, his incredible book, Children of the Living God. It's really short, it's great. It says, this conviction that we can speak to the maker of the universe in such intimate terms lies at the heart of the Christian faith. But he says, we're, not only that we're able to call him Abba Father, but we're able to cry Abba Father. So it's almost this idea of not just talking to the Father, but crying out in a time of need or a time of desperation. We are able to do that knowing that he hears us. Um, J.I. Packer says this in his book, Knowing God. You sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he doesn't understand Christianity very, very well at all. Big statement, but this was true. Uh, of me for a long time. Uh, so not only that, but the spirit of God bears witness that we are sons. God has sent the spirit into our hearts to remind us, to press into us, to remind us of our adoption in Christ. Um, so in our process of adoption, a, a witness had to be present for it to be a legal um, binding agreement. Um, there had to be a witness and the witness had to sign off to say I was here. So in the event that there was ever any question that we were indeed children of God, the Holy Spirit is there to say, I saw it. I was a witness. And the Spirit of God bears witness to our spirit that we are indeed sons of God. I remember this and I, and I see this at work in my life when sometimes I fail to believe uh, that I am a child of God. And it's an unbelievable thought to think that the same spirit who was at work in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ that allowed him to call him Abba Father is now at work in us, assuring us of our salvation that we have in Christ. But we also see that Christ, our elder brother, shares his inheritance with us. So through Christ, we are now called sons. He says we are called heirs. We are joint heirs or co-heirs with Christ. The, the riches that were lavished upon Christ are now lavished upon us. And that takes place both now and in the time to come. 
uh, which I want to look at. So the, the question that I will put on the table is, so what? So what with all of these ideas that we've been talking about? Well, Francis Lyle, who is a pr- professor uh, emeritus now at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, uh, he wrote this book called Slaves, Citizens, and Sons. And, and it's a study on, uh, part of it is a study on this idea of Roman adoption. Um, because in Roman adoption, he points out that four significant things happen. One, the child's previous debts are canceled. So when a child comes into a new family, their debts are canceled. And that's great news for us today, that all of our sins, again, have been wiped away, have been paid for. Um, All of the the disobedience that has marked my life and even the, the, the works righteousness that I have tried to earn my way back, all of that has been paid for in full. So my current and my future debts are canceled. Um, and when I sin, I can acknowledge that I have, I have been adopted into the family of God and allows me to come to him as a father. But the second privilege that we receive is that we're given a new name. We're given a new name. For us, we are called sons of the living God. And, and what a privilege. Um, maybe one of the most uh, interesting things that happened, I think our adoption became real when we adopted Audrey, uh, when we got her birth certificate in the mail. Um, so it took a time a little bit after to receive a birth certificate because of the process there. Um, but it's interesting that when I read that birth certificate, it, it said her name and it said, born this day to Denny and Michelle Catalano. And there was something as I was reading that that just didn't feel right. I literally thought she wasn't born to us. We received her later. But the document read that we were born, she was born this day on her birthday, which is not when we received her, to our family. It was as if it transcended time itself. And this is a picture of the gospel that even before the foundation of the world, he predestined us for adoption as sons, says Ephesians 1. We have been given a new name and it was a name that was given to us even before the foundation of this world. What an unbelievable truth. But the third privilege is that our future inheritance is secured for this child adopted into this family. Their future inheritance is secured. Uh, and, and, and that was probably even, I mentioned this, but in the courtroom, um, that was the thing that I was most surprised by uh, was, was even as I was saying my vows, um, the, the judge kept saying, so, so you're saying, um, Mr. Catalano, that, that if you were to ever even get a divorce, uh, with your wife, that you would now be willing to pay child support for this family or for this child, uh, that you are still going to bear financial responsibility. What he was saying essentially is, again, your inheritance, all that you have and all that you um, are entrusted will be entrusted to this child now. Um, and, and, and in Christ, we have this future inheritance. It's secured. It's a done deal. It's, it, it's been paid for. Um, and we have this future inheritance in heaven that is given to us. And we, we, we know this to be true. It's factual and it's concrete. But the fourth privilege and the last privilege is, is the fact that this child is able to experience the current blessings of the family. So it's not just that the previous debts were canceled or the future inheritance is secured or that a new name is given, but it's that the current reality is one of blessing and the promises of God that have been given uh, to those who went before us are now given to us in Christ. So two phrases that my my two-year-old now, Audrey, loves to say, 
to me uh, now, maybe the most common thing she says is, I love you, daddy. And she hugs my leg. And it's an unbelievable feeling. And um, as she just grabs my leg, I love you, daddy. But then she also, on the other hand, sometimes she says, I need you, daddy. Uh, she says, I need you, daddy. Um, she says that a lot, actually. So um, it's pretty funny. But, but even for us, we, we do have these current privileges now that, that we are able to tell God, I love you. And face to face, we're able to, to speak with him as a son would speak to a father. But we also are able to cry out to him in our time of need, as, as I mentioned before. We are able to say, Daddy, I need you. And it's interesting that the only time that Jesus does not refer, Jesus, the Son of God, does not refer to God as Father is actually when he hung on the cross. And it was at that moment that he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the one time that Jesus sees to be presently aware of God's fatherly presence and love. And it's through that old rugged cross that we see. And it's, that's the, what, what the, the point that Paul is trying to make here is that our inheritance came at the cost of the son of God himself. So I want to close with a story just as I was thinking about some of this. Um, I, I, when I think about even my work day today, one of the, the hardest parts of my day is leaving the house. It, it, it's leaving my house to go to work and, you know, because the kids are usually, they're not as much this way, but for the longest time they used to, no, daddy, don't go, don't leave me, you know, and, and it would be a hard, like, ah, man, I got to go, you know, I got to work. Um, but maybe the most, um, maybe the best part of my day is, is the moment I get to come home. And my daughter is usually the first one to greet me at the door. Um, and, you know, as soon as I'm unlocked, she hears the keys going and I open the door. She's the first one there. And, and daddy, you know, there she is. And, and usually when I, when I see her, you know, she's got, you know, food all over her face. She's got Oreos covering her mouth. And maybe she's got a full diaper. And she's got, you know, stuff all over her dress. And, and usually as a father, I'm like, hey, go clean yourself up before you come to me. I'm like, hey, go, 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 go get right before you come and give me a hug. No, I wouldn't do that as a father. That would be, that would be kind of crazy. Um, but as a father, no, I, I grab her up and I pick her up and I, and I, you know, smush my cheeks into her cheek and I do with all my kids, you know, hey, you know, it doesn't matter what, you know, and, 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 and that's the place that we as sons of God are able to come to God, our father. Neither to earn our justification, our, our righteous standing before God, by our obedience to the law. Um, but we uphold the law and we live righteously because of what has been accomplished on the cross for us to be adopted as sons. But we can now come to him even in our filth, even when we blow it, even when we screw up over and over and over with cookie crumbs all over our face and full diapers, we're able to come to God and know that he is a father to us. And that is an unbelievable privilege for us that I hope and I pray that will shape the rest of our lives in the way that we, we, we um, um, live in this world amongst people who desperately need to know that God, our Father, has gone to great lengths to give us this inheritance. Let's pray. Father, we are, um, we are beyond privileged to be adopted into your family. We see the great lengths with which you have gone, Lord Jesus Christ, in, in offering up yourself as a curse for us so that we would receive the inheritance of you. 
I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be our portion, our hope, our trust, all that we have, that we would primarily view ourselves as those who are sons of God. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would consecrate those truths, sear them deep within our hearts, remind us of who we are and whose we are in Christ. We love you, God, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.